welcome everyone to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to talk with Matthias about remote work and building side projects. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. What's up, everyone? My name is James Hewick, and I still haven't decided on a title for myself, so I will go with developer, speaker, and teacher. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton, and I am a lead maintainer on the Redwood JS core team. And today we have a fantastic sponsor with Contentful. So Contentful is a composable headless CMS, and I have actually worked on several client projects that use Contentful and can speak from firsthand experience that it is a fantastic platform and used by some great companies uh, across the country. I think it's actually one of the leading platforms. So we encourage you to check out Contentful. And thanks again, Contentful, for being a Compressed FM sponsor. Sweet. Thank you, Contentful. And welcome to our guest, Matias Hernandez. Welcome to the show. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about your background? Hey, thank you for having me. Long time listener, first time caller. Yeah, from the start, I've been listening to your show. My name is Matias Hernandez. I'm a Chilean engineer, developer, software engineer, named, pick your poison yourself. Uh, I'm currently working as a senior software engineer at Clevertech. Clevertech is a remote company. I've been doing remote work for around 14 years now. Actually, my entire career has been remote. I only spent like nine months in an office. Didn't enjoy it that much. And yeah, mainly my my main work has been always the web. Uh, lately, JavaScript, TypeScript, and the ecosystem there. And I've been exploring other things, but that is what I do majority of my work. Awesome. So when you talk about doing remote work, are you also talking about international remote work? Yeah. Or- that's very yeah, cool. Yeah, my first remote work was here in Chile, but in another city. So I was living in Talca. This is the name of the city where I live. And the work was on Santiago, the capital city. But after a year and a half around, I moved to work totally remotely to United States. So mo- most of the clients were there. Awesome. Was it hard to get a job in the United States? I've had several people ask me that, and I can't speak from experience. Oh, uh, well, I, my first job job was with Topsol, where it's a kind of kind of a market where you interview with them and then pair up with the clients. So you don't have to do the client searching. That is kind of the best way to find a job remotely. But the, the interview was kind of hard, and I think that the most the hardest part was speak English for mm-hmm. real because I was speaking English for real, quote-unquote, at my country without too many English speakers. Mm. And then all of a sudden, you had to start speaking with clients. And there are too many things to take care about what you, are you saying, to be clear about uh, the ideas you want to state. And that is the hardest part. Luckily, uh, TopTal have a uh, part of the interview on TopTal is about checking your English levels in terms of technical English levels. And if you're good, technically speaking, kind of exposing what are you doing and talking about your actual job, you're good to go. Everything else comes after. I spent 14 years talking in meetings. So 
<laughs> I, I'm still uh, struggling with some words, but I can do this kind of content now. So, mm -hmm. It's awesome. On the speaking a different language, I felt like I spoke Spanish really well for a long time, and I've actually been out of practice. But then I went on Matias's podcast as a guest with the whole thing in Spanish and really realized how far away from speaking fluently and comfortably I was, especially with technical things. And like you could probably equate like what I speak at like a four year old's English, like it's or like or Spanish, like a four year old's language is probably how I speak Spanish, honestly. But it was such a challenge. So props to to you for embracing that like learning curve and and putting in the work to be able to communicate effectively over the course of several years because that's a really tough thing to do yeah uh, a second language is always hard for everyone and every time someone asks me how to get a job outside uh, my first thing is to learn a language english not any technical advice because that is not the problem the problem is how you communicate because communication is kind of the first way you can get something done uh, to understand the requirements, understand the nuances that clients have, and learn to speak English. And how I did it, because I had, I was lucky enough to have my five first years of the school with a really, really good school where we had a English, a native English speaker as a teacher. So my very first years was like that. And after that, I really loved computers, and everything was in English. So I had, I was forced to learn to read and to write English and things just came out. We had Leticia Portella on episode 139 and she also talked about working like within a different language. And one of the things that she talked about was just the like emotion, maybe not emotional, but like the mental exhaustion at the end of the day when you've had to spend all day trying to translate into another language when you're thinking in your native language. At some point, you stop doing that. At some point, you are you are so good at speaking the other language that the language is almost native for you. You can kind of think in the language and there is no switch. It's mm. just natural. For example, it's happened to me now that sometimes I'm speaking in a meeting in English and sometimes the kids comes and obviously speak in Spanish and I mm. answer in both because I confuse them because it's natural, right? But at some point, it was really, really hard. My weirdest moment was what with Mosio, a company where I was working in a startup. They pay for a travel to have a, a gathering in between the whole team in Brazil. But the main language there was to speak English. And I was never able to, to speak during the whole day in another language with people from around the world in different topics that were not technical. Mm. That was a real challenge for sure. And I actually, it actually went really well. So yeah, that was my test of fire. I'm going to highlight a comment here. Just to say another thing to point out is that your accent doesn't really need to be native passing to be able to work and communicate in English, but you need to be able to communicate effectively. And I think that's a great point that this person is also named Matias brought up is that communicating and speaking that particular language are two different things. Cause you can also be a native English speaker and a terrible communicator, <laughs> to, which is going to make your job difficult. 
Shouts to Matias. Matias is an Argentinian developer now and big streamer on Twitch. So if you speak Spanish, go check the channel. And if you want to learn English, go check his channel too. <laughs> so awesome. And we do have a couple of questions that came through on the chat. So I'll go ahead and ask those. One is from Swathwick2. I'm a student and make my hands dirty on the front end side. And now I want to learn the back end. So my question is, what type of projects might my profile stand out in the industry as a student? When I started, this is kind of my story and my opinions there. When I started at that time, there was a job that was kind of doing the translation between designs into HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript. There were not too many front end, front frameworks, sorry. So that was the first time kind of work. After that, the frameworks came into place and frontend is good enough to find job. And I will say, in my opinion, that you will find more remote works as a frontend engineer than as a backend engineer for some reason. That's just how I feel. For some reason, looks like backend people, companies want backend people on site, even remote, but on site still than frontend engineers. Frontend engineers, I know people working in frontend for all over the world, but not too many backend developers in the same fashion. So, and what projects? Uh, I think that currently the line between frontend and backend is totally blurry with the new frameworks. Mm -hmm. And I think that any project can showcase that you can understand the whole flow of the data from your database or third-party service till the screen. So I think that any project can do that. The only thing that you need to showcase is that you understand how the data flows one way and the other, from user to the database or service and backwards. I'm a huge advocate of people doing full stack stuff for exactly what you just said, of being able to understand how the whole thing works. And I think being able to articulate that in an interview is super important. And there's maybe a couple of like easy answers or components to add in to elaborate on what you said is just like one included database. And then I think authentication, like having actual users associated with data, full stack, like full stack, anything basically. And really like we, we kind of joke about to do apps being like kind of useless, but also if you like everything is a to do, like everything is a crud application. So just build something like find something that's interesting for you. If you're into basketball or reading or dancing or whatever, like build something relevant to that. Make it full stack for the practice. Include a database of some sort. I don't think it matters a whole lot what it is unless you've done research about like our companies looking for Postgres versus Mongo, et cetera. And then do authentication, like have actual user data. The other thing I'll mention is as you're building those from a learning perspective, don't assume that this is also going to be the SaaS platform that you make money off of, like separate those concerns because I think a lot of people try to do way too much to start. And they get overwhelmed. So just focus on learning opportunities and things that communicate like, this is what I know that you can talk about in interviews. Yeah. When I'm teaching, I really love to teach with to-do obligations. And there is a reason people kind of make fun of to-do obligations, but to-do obligations, everyone knows what a to-do obligation needs to do. Everyone knows the requirements, everyone knows the, the expectation and the output. So you don't focus on that. You focus on the thing you're learning, the tech. After that, you can focus on requirements and how the thing you learned will be used to create that requirements. 
But first, clean up the requirements, do something that you know to do application, blog post, a blog site or something like that, because it's really simple. You can, you will also find a lot of documentation about how that works. Yeah. And you can create a blog site with this cool framework <laughs> called Astro. <laughs> and if you're looking to learn Astro, <laughs> I've got a course coming out. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about being a front-end developer is that it's become a lot easier to make that transition from front-end to back-end. Because if you do know JavaScript, you can write JavaScript on the back-end as well. And that line is going to be blurred even more so if you're familiar with React, with React server components and being able to pull that in. The other nice thing is with backend as a service, those lines get blurred even more. So Supabase is fantastic. Zeta is fantastic. There's AppWrite is another one. James, I know you've worked with them, but they're great for helping you do a lot of that database piece, the handling the database piece that you might not be comfortable with. So, and then if you're going to call out your thing, <laughs> Redwood also makes it super easy to do all that stuff. I will add, even if you use some database as a service like Supabase, that is awesome, or some mm -hmm. ORM like SQLize, yep. old school, or Drizzle now, one thing you need to learn in the backend is SQL. Doesn't matter if you're using any service, learn SQL, because it will make your life easier. You will understand how data relations works. Even if you don't understand all of the database concepts, there are too many but understand how to communicate with the database that will uh, make your life easier, even using ORMs. So, And I was also just going to add in, Swath, if you're interested in doing more backend things, episode 105, we had Lane Wagner on, and he has a course, you know, a lot of content on backend development. So you can check his stuff out, and I'll include a link to that particular episode in the show notes, but also in the chat. Before we kind of shift gears a little bit, I did want to highlight one other chat comment or question. So if you work on the open source side, which Matias, I'm not sure if you do open source sponsored. You do. Fantastic. Okay. So where do you get the money? And if you can share with us how much money you make, whatever you feel comfortable with. Yeah. I think this is a great question to link with another stuff. <laughs> I've been doing open source like forever, even before GitHub, but I never did actually something big with open source. Not, none of my components, libraries, services, anything came to be famous at any time. But I've been on GitHub since the start, and there is no money there unless you do something big. And open source sustainability is actually a big topic right now because most of the companies rely rely on open source software to build their millionaire uh, services, but don't come back with that money to the actual developers. But there is a way to get money from open source software. I've been building a spell Cloudinary. That's a library to work with Cloudinary and within a spell or a spell kit uh, application. And that was a paid work. So I'm not sure if I can share it. The yes, amount. please. Oh, I, not I, that. I, Sorry, I I'm thought you were going to talk about the link. <laughs> yeah. uh, so. The link is spelled dot dot dev. Perfect. Cool, cool name. Uh, but amount, the money amount is good. It's good to be <laughs> it's worth. Good. It. It's good to be worth it in terms of you will spend X hours of time because you know everyone, every developer out there, it's not good with estimation of time. So don't say anything different, and. 
But if you think about that, you will get good money. Depends on the company that is open to sponsor this kind of work, of community work. So uh, with Cloudinary, did you reach out to them and ask if they'd sponsor it? Or how did no, that that's look like? kind of uh, working in, uh, and different. I've been a long-time user of Cloudinary. By the way, if you don't know the service, I'm not a sponsor to say this, but if you don't know the service, the service is awesome. Just that, use it. I'm mean, a long-time user of Cloudinary, but I also had some struggles with how you handle transformations and all of that in your uh, applications. And lately, I've been using Svelte in a Svelte kit for all of my side projects. And Cloudinary is always kind of a default. But I so I started to build my own kind of solution to do this. And speaking with Colby, Colby Fayuk, shout out to Colby again. He was looking to expand the universe of Cloudinary. He built Next Cloudinary, a library to use Next Image with Cloudinary powers. And he wanted to expand this. And we start to talk about that. And we agreed to build a spell Cloudinary. That is basically the same API as the successful Next Cloudinary, but for the spell world. Very cool. Uh, what did that process look like when you were working with Cloudinary? Were you suggesting changes? Did they define the feature set? What did that process look like? The first iteration, we are at version one dot something in the minor. And it was to be on pair with Next Cloudinary. That is mm-hmm. the leading point. So everything that Next Cloudinary can do, Spell Cloudinary can do it too. Also, shout out to Nux Cloudinary that also exists that is doing actually the same thing. So we are on pair. And from here, this is the base level. And from here, I'm the maintainer of that library. And I can actually do whatever I want after this base level with the library and add, add any I don't know, components or functions or APIs that I need. Very cool. So what are your opinions of open source? I think it's awesome. First of all, you need everyone needs to agree <laughs> that all of the things that we do in the internet now are on top of open source software. There's nothing like private software sustaining everything out there. Even the big players in the in, te- in the tech space are using somehow open source software. If you don't, uh, if you recall, LeftPath. Uh, that's a good example of what ha- happened when open source software breaks. Uh, if you don't recall that, look for left bad uh, drama or something like that. And, Google this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it's great. I think it's a great way to learn. I think it's a great, great way to uh, increase your knowledge because you can join to different contributions or repositories. It's big ones, small ones. There's no need to actually go and, for example, contribute to React or Svelte. There are big players. There are big code bases that can be hard to understand, even the first good issues. But you can, for example, ask James if he want to <laughs> accept contributions to the Learn, Build, Teach bot, for example or join communities like Learn, Build, Teach, or other ones that create projects by themselves. And and that is still open source, even if it's not used by anyone else. This project that uh, uh, lives inside GitHub is open source. You can contribute. If you want, you can contribute to my own blog. That is also open source. So I think it's great. You can learn a lot. And exposing yourself, building, quote-unquote, in public will create a good feedback loop that is faster than 
looking for documentation, YouTube videos, or that kind of things. Just wanted to mention while we're on the Cloudinary hype train, uh, I posted this on Twitter right before we went live about how excited I am to have like auto-generated thumbnail or cover images for the podcast. So what happens is I create or we create the item inside of Sanity. So I just uploaded Matthias's information earlier, the title of the episode, the number, and it sends off a webhook request to a node server that uses Cloudinary to generate a new image, which just overlays that text in your picture on top of it and then uploads that back to Sanity, uh, which I still get like so excited about that use case. And in my Astro course, we use Cloudinary to automatically generate images, cover images for each blog post. So it basically has like a very simple image that it takes the title of the blog post and just overlays it on top of the uh, the base image. So I thought that was a ton of fun too. But they're an amazing product, also a, a ton of fun to work with. And I love, Matthias, like kind of the call out of, there's a lot of different ways, I think, to make money as a developer. And so there's, I think it's tough to make money, as you said, like just from owning an open source repo. That's a tough thing. Like unless it's really big, that's really tough. But you can do consulting, from like, I'm trying to get into developer experience consulting when people have products, like I'll spend time going through and providing feedback because I've done this. Like I've tried out, you know, tons of projects over the years and I can provide legitimate feedback. Like that's a valuable skill set or people to build it like you did or whatever. So I think it's a really fun way to kind of look internally at, at what things you can provide and potentially turn that into a pitch to do some sort of consulting. Yeah, so I'm going to drop a few episodes in here. Episode 48. So this was a while back, but the content is evergreen is how to make money as a developer. So that's a great listen. If you're looking for different things, Go ahead, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I <remember. laughs> and then episode 50 is an interview with Brian Douglas. And he also goes by B Dougie. He has a company called open sauce. So I'm including all these links in the chat and they'll also be included in the show notes. But what he does is he tries to pair open source projects with developers. And one of the things that he made a case for on that particular episode is that's a great way for a junior to level up and learn directly from a senior. Because a lot of times, if somebody is maintaining an open source project, they are going to welcome somebody with open arms that says, yes, I would like to volunteer to help on your project. They're not going to turn you away. And so it's a good opportunity to be mentored by that person. And if it's a good first issue, if it's a well-maintained repository, they will label issues as first is good first issues. And what makes a good first issue is that it tells you what the problem is and how to solve it. So as a developer, the logic's taken care of. You just have to go in and write the code for it. The maintainer just might not have the opportunity or the time to actually write that code. And so they've provided you with the solution. So it's a great way to get feedback on your code, especially if you're new to the industry. Also, with open source, this is something I learned from the Genome community. Do you know Genome, the desktop environment for Linux desktops? Mm-hmm. Redundant. They always say that code is not the only way to collaborate or contribute to open source. There is too many other things to do for the maintainers. Like, for example, labeling issues as a first mm. good issue is a work. It's a burden that some maintainers don't want to do. Answering questions on the comments on the info issues or in the social space. Doing the documentation. Sometimes developers kind of see that side as a something not fun or, I don't know, like lower things, but are important things. And in a very, they are a very good way to tip your toes into the code 
to understand how everything works. So there's not only code that you can contribute, you can contribute with your time and your expertise on any other area. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit. What are some projects that you've built on the side, either open source or not? Yeah, but currently the only thing that I'm doing that is not open source yet is I'm trying to build my very first product for real. Because many, I have many side projects. Most of the time never came to light and because I have too many ideas and at some, at some point the fun stops and you stop building it. How um, many domains do you own? And I, I, I will not answer. <laughs> Yes. You, you I, I and Amy really both. <laughs> Amy, I think this needs to be a recurring question that we have on the stream with guests. It's a good one. <laughs> Currently, I'm trying to build in soundscribe.app. And yes, I jump into the artificial intelligence wave, trying to build a product that is actually using products from the, by others. That, that's all. But the thing came out to be first an idea and then a proof of concept. And so all of a sudden, the proof of concept makes sense to be a service. And okay, I will build this. Uh, finally, I will get it done. Even if I don't have, have users, I don't care. I want to just get it out and have it working from end, from start to end. And if it works, if it gets value and I make money from it, good. That's a good one. If it's not, I don't care. To be honest, I will do the marketing. I will do all of the things that I need to do, but I wanted to do it for before because of the experience of building something. And oh boy, it's not easy. <laughs> How long have you been working on it? Almost three months already. Okay. I'm a senior software engineer at Clevertech. I have a full-time job and I have two little kids that are too little that they during the winter they are most at home than school. So I had to juggle my full-time work, my parenting work, and all of the things I do at the side. I create content. I sometimes record on YouTube, write. I, that's another way to, to make money as a developer, writing. And trying to squish, squash time to build my, my Sanskrit application.app and be myself also. Luckily to me, I really love to be on the screen. So when I actually build in Sanscribe, I'm enjoying it. But I also had to be mindful because I'm getting old, quote unquote, <laughs> that I need to do some things like walking, go outside to to take to touch some grass and work out and all of those things. So yeah. I try to work every day on Sanscribe, at least an hour. Mm-hmm. And that work can be tweaking the UI, doing the actual logic, or sometimes just researching about things that I don't know. Because I have many years in the field, but there are many things that I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I had to research and that's actually work. Yep. Yep. There's a question in the chat that I wanted to grab. So if you, it's a question about working in the US, if you are on a different side of the world that doesn't necessarily have a working visa. I can't speak to that because I don't know. Do you have to have a visa in order to work even if you're not here? Sometimes. Most of the companies that have worldwide remote work, they are they're doing the deal as a contractor. So you don't need the visa. You need to be able to work on your country. But the bad side of that is that you had to pay your own taxes on, on your country because there is no employer relation. Okay, it's, uh, same with health benefits and all of that. Some companies offer 
benefits to the contractors as they are employees, but not everyone. I, my, for many years, I had this experience of working as a contractor. So basically, if I don't work for some reason, vacations, sickness, whatever, I don't get paid. So less money. So basically, you cannot get sick. And, and vacations are twice as costing, <laughs> twice as, what is the word, expensive, because mm-hmm. you are not you are relaxing, but not earning money. And currently at the company I am, and in big show to Clevertech, they doing the remote work in the correct way, in my opinion. I'm a contractor officially, but I have the same benefits as if I'm working in USA. I have the personal development fund stipend to buy anything I want. That's where the camera, the lights, the desk, the computer, everything came from there. And they also are really family friendly. They understand that working remote most of the time, the the ones that work at home is the one that need to do the parenting work also. So they are very comprehensive. I have paid vacations. That's awesome. You know, you know how many years I I had without paid vacation? And that's awesome. So yeah, no visa. But if you consider the other side of the world as other time zone, that will be hard. So, yeah. Good deal. I was curious. One thing to add to the queue is the like tech stack for Soundscribe. Mm-hmm. So I was interested to learn more about that too when we have a chance. Yeah, I will love, I will happily dive into Soundscribe. Soundscribe is built with a spell kit because I love that framework. If you don't know what a spell kit is, Think about Svelte as React, then Svelte as Next. Svelte is the opinionated way to build applications using Svelte as the framework for the UI. And in my opinion, they have really good opinions. They're really good ideas to how this should be built. And I think some of that ideas kind of went to Next too, like the plus page that is built and plus page that server naming for routing. So I'm using that. I'm writing TypeScript because you should write TypeScript. You're writing something with JS. And I move it along different things. At some point, I found a struggle that I was pushing this to Versal and versal free tier, obviously. <laughs> but the time that you can have a function running with versal is around 15 seconds, something like that, 15 to 30 seconds. And if you're using OpenAI, OpenAI or any other AI API, that could take even five minutes, uh, even more sometimes. And sometimes you need to repeat the request because for some reason you have a 429 error, that is too many requests, I think. You had to implement some algorithm to do a retry with back of algorithm. So I was thinking how I can run long running jobs on serverless. And here is where the struggle of getting everything perfect and be caught by the trends starts because I was thinking all the time in serverless. So I went to AWS. But I didn't want to use AWS. I wanted to use something easier. So I recommend if you need AWS, use well, SST framework. Awesome piece of tech. And I built some queues and some lambdas to be able to run off this. But now I move out from that because I noticed that I can just deploy this thing as a Node.js server. And I will not have the trouble of long running jobs on a serverless function. 
simple solution, more than simple. But I'm still over-engineering my thing. I'm using a library named FXTS. Not sure if you've uh, uh, been seeing that around Twitter, X. Effect, then let me write it here. I will look for the uh, link after. FXTS is basically a way to use TypeScript and bend TypeScript to get a good effect system. Like everything is lazy, nothing runs direct immediately like promises. Promises, the bad thing about the promises that we have in JavaScript is that they are not really monads, they are not futures, they are asynchronous executions, but if they are executed immediately when you define it, but the response will come after at some point. The idea of the effect is that everything is declared to be done at some point and only run when you want it. The syntax can be sometimes hard. <laughs> yeah, because it's trannious, because it's more like to the functional programming world. But the way they are thinking about this is to try to not teach you about functional programming world and monads and all of that things that makes pro functional programming hard, but make the simplest as possible. Bending JavaScript and bending uh, TypeScript to their will. The best thing of this is I have code that doesn't throw. So I can handle every possible error. I can handle that. I can log that. And I can use Sentry, another cool service I'm using in part of my stack, to check my errors and all of that. And what else can I tell you about Sunscrap? For the AI thing, I'm using OpenAI to generate the content. But I move it from Whisper model to for the uh, transcript to use Deepgram. And I learned about Deepgram because mm -hmm. of a post that Joe, Joel from Edhead made. Now, I'm not sure if you read that. Joel is now working in Ingest. Uh, I wanted to try that, but mm -hmm. I cannot. And he posted how they created the KenC.Service, service, Ken C. as a service. Mm -hmm. And they are describing, they are doing transcription with Deepgram. By the way, what I'm doing why I'm doing all of these things? The service is about help me, help me, helping me first <laughs> to create content. One of the easiest way to create content, in my opinion, is by talking, like currently. And but then you need to transcribe that, and then you need to read that, and then you need to write whatever you need. And going directly to the white page, white page, can be questionably hard. And I thought, why not I speak to the mic, say whatever I need to say, and then let the artificial intelligence take over to create some base content that I can edit after. And that is the idea. Record, re recreate an article, an essay, a Twitter thread, or a script for a video, and then edit. So I'm working through that. That's so good. I, I feel like it's so much easier for me to talk than it is for me to write like anytime someone has a question for me i often respond by recording a little video first because it's just so much easier for me to talk i had a quick question on the salt kit piece so you talked about the limitations of serverless functions and timing does that mean now that you're deploying it as a node app that you're not running you're not hosting in vercel yeah that's me i will not okay. host in vercel i'm will use flight.io i think i will use that to have a run-running node service. 
Because okay. even with Versal, you need to go to the pro plan to have like five minutes of serverless function. And yeah, I don't, I'm not making any money yet. So doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's, I, I think I love serverless. I, I imagine you do too, which is why you started that way. But there's also still limitations with serverless at this point. And it's funny, I, I feel like some people don't understand that because I'll ask things on Twitter of like, how do you set up just a node app with TypeScript? And people are like, use Next.js. It's like, nope, I'm specifically asking because there are use cases for a regular full node app instead of serverless. That's actually one of our requirements, unfortunately, right now, because I, maybe I just haven't figured it out, Amy, but how to do some image uploads in serverless functions in Next.js for whatever reason, like I just, there's something missing about what I'm trying to do. So we, to do that process, ha- had to create a separate node server that's deployed to render. And it's not embedded inside of the serverless functions that we have in our compressed Next.js site. The thing with serverless is that you need to recall that you are not running running Node.js. You are running some other engine. And for example, in most of that engines, the file API is different than the file API in Node. So actually, you don't have the fs.path for example, that you have in Node. So when you are uploading, for example, images or audio files, whatever, you cannot store that in mem- in disk because you don't have disk. There is no storage. You have memory. And you need to work out everything as buffers or UNT arrays and all of that and do that conversions. But buffer is also not available in most of the serverless engine. So you need to do some tricks here and there. And it can be hard. But this is this framework like a spell kit allows you to not only focus on serverless, you can just build with the node adapter and will create a node application. Like like if you will work at like the old times where you when you spin up Express service and spin up a React application on the other side and then you communicate both, you can do everything at the same editor with the same uh, folder. So so, so for so say. I haven't thought about this from a deployment perspective until now, but you can't do that with Next.js. Like Next.js is specifically serverless. I don't think they have like an export to just Node.js. Open Next to it. Say what? I think Open Next. There is a, ver- a fork of Next. Oh, that okay. Is named to open be able to Next, do that. And I, I'm pretty sure they can do that. Also, there are other frameworks based on React. I, I think we know one that can do it. <laughs> Red tell Red me Red more. I was gonna say, are you gonna talk about Redwood or talk about yeah. Oh, I thought yeah. we were talking about Remix. Sorry, <laughs> Remix. <laughs> also oh, was, oh, just, just kidding. I actually <laughs> was a hard one. Yeah, Amy, you should talk about that. And what I was gonna add is like, I'm actually really interested to continue to learn more and more about Remix. Or excuse me, damn it, sorry. <laughs> about Redwood from Amy with her working there. So anytime you want to bring that up into the conversation, I am 100% for it. So don't <laughs> don't shy away from it. And I will try not to make that mistake again. Sorry. No, it, was tr- <laughs> it was a good troll though. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am more interested to learn about Remix. So the great thing about Redwood is that it is a, a proper framework and that it does have a front end and a back end. So you can separate the two. You could just use it as an API and just use the back end or you could just use the front end. The other great thing that we're working on right now is React server components. So incorporating a lot of those other features that those other frameworks 
shall not be named are currently using. So it will have parity with all of those, which will be pretty cool. Right now it's mostly a spa, so a single page application, but in the future you'll have more options for rendering. You know what? I've been working with React almost since React appears and I don't get React server components. <laughs> I, I cannot make my mind where when I need it. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's because I almost o- always reach for next without server components for mm-hmm. SSR or for a spell kit. That's what I to what I reach spell kit. And we don't have server components on a spell kit. We have server and right. components, <laughs> different things, but right. everything is SSR still. So yeah, I can talk about it a little bit from a next perspective. And then I'll talk about slightly how Redwood's approaching it right now. So with Next, if you use the app directory, then that will give you access to be able to create or use React server components. And when you're working with it, a lot of times it just feels like you're writing normal React. You can go ahead and make calls to the database and grab all that information and pass it down. It'll feel very familiar to what you're already used to doing. The tricky part is that the way that Next has implemented it Actually, that's not true. The tricky part to React Server components is that you can't maintain state. So when you think about state, that's something that's controlled in the browser. So state can be like, is this menu showing? Is this thing toggled on or off? And so anytime you start to get into that piece of it, that has to be a client-side component so that the state of it can be managed in the browser. So it does take a little bit of getting used to when you start building something to say, okay, am I just grabbing data and displaying it? Or am I going to have to do data with it or do something with that data, transform it, maintain state, try and show what the client's using it, different things like that, then you have to convert it to a client-side component. And with Next.js, you just say, use client in quotes at the top of that file, and that converts it to a client-side component. So it is a little tricky. The other piece that I've run into with Next is that I didn't even realize this was a thing beforehand because it just feels like magic. But there's when you're passing data from the server, let's say a React server component to a client component, you have to have like a primitive object. I'm probably using the wrong language here. But what that means is that you can't have an object that has multiple levels. So like with JSON, you might say, hey, this is an address. And then that has a sub object in it for street, city, state, and zip. Sorry, that's the United States. But it's like a sub object or a sub layering. And with React Server components, you can't pass that over. It actually has to be one, just one level deep. So the way that you can get around that is you either pass in all of your props individually, or this feels a little hacky to me. You can say, hey, I'm just going to convert this to a JSON string. And then on the other side, once you get to your client, you're going to blow that back out into an object. So it, that piece feels a little messy to me. From the Redwood side, one of the things that makes Redwood Redwood that's not available in other frameworks is they have this concept of a cell. And so what a cell does is it says, hey, I have a loading state, I have an error state, and I have a success state, and I have an empty state. So a lot of times if you're creating your own applications, when you need those states, you have to check. Is this thing empty? Did I encounter an error? Are we loading this data? Okay, now I can display the success state. And so you have a whole bunch of data trying to handle each of those conditions. Well, Redwood says, hey, we'll handle that for you because generally that logic works the same in any type of context. Like we can handle the conditions. We can tell you what's happening. 
And so with a cell, you actually just include four different components with like a loading component, an error component, a blank component, a success component, and it will deliver, it'll serve up whatever version you need. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how React server components work within the context of Redwood. But one of the things that we're doing is we're saying, hey, you're already using cells to deliver these things out. It's already going ahead and grabbing all that data. It's querying the database for you. Let's make this as seamless as possible and connect that with React server components so that it feels much more similar to what you're already doing and how you're already using Redwood. So all that still needs to be determined. But to me, that's kind of an interesting use case instead of having to do this weird JSON conversion thing that just feels kind of gross. Yeah, it feels like RSC are kind of a primitive to allow frameworks to use them, yep. not directly pointed to developers to use it. Mm-hmm. Like you use RSC through the framework, not directly to the component. Yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting, too, to look at how Remix has handled this. So since James brought up Remix, Remix is using what's called a data loader pattern. And so what it does is it says, hey, I'm going to, you can grab all your server data inside this function, and then you can use a hook to be able to access it. And so one thing about that particular pattern is it makes it very clear what is happening on the server and then what's happening on the front end. So it's kind of two different ways to think about it, except Remix isn't using React server components, but it's still handling a similar task. There was a stream by Ryan Carniaro and Tanner Slinsley. They were talking about reactivity, uh, RSC, TypeScript, and other things, where they defined this pattern that Remix SpellKit use as the well-known exported function because you need to name the function in a particular way to allow the compiler to actually do the work. And they are working in something that will be kind of automatically learn where are you writing if it's server or site. Uh, So I put some eyes on what Tanner is doing. Uh, It looks really interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me jump back to another thing. One of the questions you made, James, was about the tech stack. I forgot about the front-end side of the tech stack, Tailwind for the win and Daisy UI. I think that some people still hate Tailwind, but yeah, go write your own CSS and let's see who had more luck with with it. So, yeah. I'm catching up on the chat. I'm sorry. (laughs) No problem. By the way, I think I'm probably out of commission for the rest of this. So, Amy, you'll have to take us home. (laughs) You are good. Enjoy enjoy this time. Yeah. Will not have it is fun. I feel like this is this has probably been the toughest of me being at home all week has been right now, which is not any fault of hers, but she's been so no, good. Totally fine. Was, uh, she's been work, very good. Yeah. Well, you work at the camera, so that is different. Yes. But I used to work at the floor with them. So they were crawling <laughs> or doing something yeah. at the floor and I watched the computer and at the yeah. carpet and working there. So, But at the camera, it's different. <laughs> I've had screaming temper tantrums <laughs> at the door while I'm trying to <laughs> have a meeting. Okay, awesome. Cool. Um, so I'm going to grab a couple of the questions from the chat and then we can go from there. Okay, so um, there were a few questions in the chat about remote internships, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but one was, are remote internships quite common, and how do you find one? Or No, I, mean, I cannot answer the same that. Question. 
I cannot answer that because I experience the having an internship not me i mean a mm -hmm. person that was doing the internship in mosio the company i was working at, i don't know six seven years ago but i'm not sure how that worked at all the thing yeah. with remote work the only thing that i kind of i will argue against remote work is that most of the companies that do remote work like for real are looking for seniors quote-unquote engineers, mm -hmm. senior developers. And I think it's not because of the technical skill. It's more like the self-management skill because while when working remotely, you really need to be aware of how you spend your time, how you manage expectations and a lot of other soft skills that most of the time you will not encounter on junior developers. And I would say they don't have it because some person, some people are really amazing, but you don't expect to find that out in a junior developer. So, yeah, sure. I'm not sure. Somebody had asked this further in the chat and I just responded directly, but it is kind of a weird hiring time right now in the United States. People are hiring, but it's a lot more competitive. And so kind of along with what you're saying, I feel like people have let go of internships or junior level work a lot faster and are trying to hang on to more of their senior level stuff. So if you are a junior looking for a job, my encouragement is to look into open source and try and connect with people that way, because it's always going to be easier if you can network and make those relationships than just to cold email somebody. When the market is hard, the best thing you can do is networking, but honest network networking. Uh, I mean, the thing of being here with you and James is part of that networking I've been mm -hmm. doing for, but because I was there, it's not because I'm looking to have networked and after this podcast, I will go uh, and ask Amy for a job. It's not, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the other way around. It's like my relation with Colby to find out that I will be helping him to build this Cloudinary version. It's because I knew him for some time through other communities, other parts so of the work. So, hey, say hi. <laughs> it's, my, it's my turn, you know? I love it. I love it. Uh, well, and I, it's kind of funny. James and I even had a conversation this past week because we were saying that our the podcast has almost been one of the best networking opportunities, even for us. And just, I know not everybody has the capacity to have a podcast, but it is like the best excuse to meet somebody and have yeah. a conversation and extend your network. That's another part that is can maybe hard someone ask through the chat how you handle all of that, having kids, doing content mm -hmm. and open source or whatever. And it's hard. And I think that the best way you can handle that is to not be hard on yourself. For example, I have a podcast. I have two podcasts. And now I have none. I, I'm not keeping up with that because I can handle the time to, to actually have time every week to record and then uh, edit because edit takes a lot of time if you don't have an editor. Yeah. And having an editor requires money and you are not uh, earning any money from that kind of things. So what I do, I create content in other ways. I have a YouTube channel, but I don't record every... I think the last time I recorded was kind of two months ago. I have courses on Edhead. I trying to build another a new course this year. My goal was always to try to build three courses on Edhead, and most of the time I all I'm only able to do one. So, but 
doing the podcast was a really good way to learn about people. That's how I kind of become to learn more about James because I was with him twice in Spanish and in English. Having a writing is a new, really good world to create some kind of community or audience around your content. And doing it part-time, I think, was Swix at Twitter that he created this part-time content creator manifesto. I will try to look mm -hmm. for it. I can. And the idea is that being part-time is a good way to create content because you have this field okay. knowledge. But at the same time, you need to learn how to handle your goals. Your goal is not to become a content creator full-time. This is way different because you have other responsibilities. So, but it's a great way to create community. It's a, it's a great way to stand out also. Since we were talking about the market and how to get a job, being able to stand out for some other expertise or skill is a good way to not only compete with others about your technical skill. I, I would say most of the people are good programmers. I, I mm -hmm. don't know any really bad programmer that doesn't deserve the, the name. So er, everyone, most of the people are good programmers. The only way to uh, stand out about that is being having other skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Let's see. Okay, we have two more questions and then we'll kind of wrap it. So this one, does a degree matter for your job? And at least from personal experience, I do not have a degree in computer science. My degree is actually in radio TV broadcasting, but I found that a degree for me at least has been helpful just to have a degree, but I don't think you have to have a degree to do what you do. And the nice thing about what we do in tech is if somebody were to come to me now and say, Hey, I want to go. I want to have a career change and get into tech. I would probably say that you can, you don't need a degree. You can get all the information that you need online. My personal opinion, if you're 18, that there's a lot of growing up that happens when you go to university or college. And so that is to me more helpful and more beneficial of doing that than, but, but I mean, if you don't know what you want to do, don't, I wouldn't say spend the money. Like you can get a lot of the information that you need online and other things. So I, I'm kind of talking in circles right now, but all that's to say is do what works for you and what makes sense for you. I agree with that. Totally. Okay. Uh, I cannot speak about the self, the self learn process because I have a degree, but I do nothing related directly related to the degree because what I learned in that university doesn't feels like the thing I'm doing right now. But mm -hmm. I learn a lot about fundamentals, a lot about mathematics, yes. a lot about physics, and a lot about people. And I think that is the main thing you do, yeah. you get from the degree. Not only the, obviously, it costs a lot of money, but yes. you will learn other skills. And I don't know, uh, I'm kind of in the, in the fence there. I will say that you yeah. can get away with a degree, you can get a good job, and you can become a really, really good developer. Mm -hmm. But some companies still ask for the degree. So it depends. Yep. 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 I'm, I'm too senior uh, engineer to say it depends. <laughs> That's a requirement. That's the first thing they teach you when you go to school, right? <laughs> say it depends. Yeah. If you get uh, the, the label as senior, you need to answer it depends. <laughs> yes. 
So uh, the last question that we'll end on is by creating courses on platforms like Udemy, is it really possible that you can earn a lot of money even if this is the first course that you've ever made? James is not on camera anymore, but he's probably the best one to answer this. I will kind of answer it for him because he doesn't have his headphones in, so he doesn't know what I'm saying right now. But he, like I said, he has a course on Udemy. And the thing about the course on Udemy is Udemy can change how what the pricing structure is for your course at any time. You have no control over whether that course is going to show up for $14 or it's going to show up for 50 or 200. They are completely in control of that. And if I remember correctly, their royalty situation is not fantastic. So they're going to take like 60 to 70% of the money that they collect. And then you get the other 30 to 40% of that. So in the case of James, I know that he has the course on Udemy, but if you also go to jamesqquick.com, you can also purchase the course from him directly there. And he gets all of the money from that particular course if you purchase it on his website. But probably the biggest benefit is that it will give you name recognition. So I believe in particular, his course got picked up by a bundle. So it's like on using VS Code. And so I think that like they've bundled it with like, hey, if you're a company that talks about programming and you want to use VS code, here's a course that we reference. So for him, he's gotten more name recognition that has gone on to mean other things. So it's not bad in the sense of building your network, which is what we've talked about, but I don't think you'll be able to live specifically off of Udemy unless you create some crazy course that just takes off. Um, like I think he, James talks a lot about the Colt Steel, I think. Uh, web bootcamp. And so that one's probably well-known. He's probably made a lot of money from it, but that's not the norm. And so that's something else to keep in mind is what the norm is versus like winning the lottery. The good thing about Udemy is that there is no hard requirements to create to you to create a course and publish there. The bad mm -hmm. side is that there is no hard requirements to create a course. This is the bad <laughs> side because th that is the reason because wh why they are cheaper, why they take so many of your money. Because for example, I had some courses on EdHead but to become an EdHead instructor is not that easier. You need to have some knowledge first and prove that, right? But you can do the other way around. Like I think the one of the successful course out there is Total TypeScript from Matt Puckock. And mm -hmm. he created a lot of free material first. He became mm -hmm. to be known as the Rodney Mullen of TypeScript. And then he created a course and he made a lot of money from that. So that's, I think it's a really, really good way to, to, to do a course. Also creating a course will teach you a lot, a lot about communication and a lot about the topic you want to teach. And that's another good way to become known about someone who knows the tech. So, yeah. And uh, Matthias did point out, uh, Matthias in the chat, excuse me, that of course, if it's your first and you want to test the waters, you can publish on Udemy and then move it elsewhere or publish a better course elsewhere. So I would also say YouTube is a great place to get started if you just want to post one-off content. It is a little humbling to post for a while before you get any recognition. So in general, the numbers I've seen is you have about 50 videos out before YouTube really starts pumping your content and pushing it or once you really can start gaining traction. So if you just have in your head, I'm going to do this for myself. I'm trying to gain experience. I want to see how I like the course creation stuff. YouTube is a great place to start. Just know that it'll probably take about 50 videos before you get a lot of visibility. Yeah. 
True. Also, cool. Matthias Valdanza also mentioned that YouTube is about to launch a courses tab there. So you ha yeah. you will be able to split your content between videos, live videos and courses. Well, I'm not sure if, if that courses will be paid courses or only mm. ad revenue. So it's different. Yeah. The thing with paid not courses like that. is that you can earn a lot if you do a, a good course. You, and, you and, and James know about launching their own material out. Or you can use a platform like I'm using EdHead, mm -hmm. working with them to create a course. I don't make that life-changing money, but I'm doing on my side some money. So that's a good one. Or, yeah, or doing the ad revenue. It's, it's all about the mm -hmm. audience that you can create. Yep, for sure. Uh, so as we wrap up the podcast, we'll head into our last segment is our picks and plugs. So this is where we pick something that we like and plug something generally that we've worked on. So Matias, do you have any picks and plugs for us this week? Yeah, uh, first I will plug something. I already talked about Sunscribe.app, so go ahead and join the waitlist. You will earn some free credits to use the application. But I want to plug again uh, Svelte Cloudinary. If you are working with Svelte and you need to handle your image assets or videos in an easy way to actually harness the powerful API for Cloudinary, the best way you can do it is with Spell Cloudinary. And I'm not saying only because I build it, it's because it's actually proven to work. Uh, so go ahead and check spell.cloudinary.dev. In case you are working with Nuxt, check the Nuxt library. Or if you're using Next, there is a Next library to do the same, to use Cloudinary at full potential with types and uh, autocomplete and all of that. And a pick, I will pick a book. Actually, an audiobook is called Homo Deus and is really, really good one, insightful. And it's not about technology. It's about human history and, and human... Sorry, that's the second one. Sapiens is the first one. Human history and the society and how we evolved to become the human that we are now. And afterwards, the same author create Homo Deus. That is his visions about the future of humanity. So, yeah, I really, really recommend those while you are working out or doing something else so you can hear. Awesome. It. Awesome. For my pick, I'm also going to pick a book that I've been reading called Red Rising. So it's kind of a dysutopian story. And it's one of those that you open the book up and there's a map, which for me, I get totally intimidated by those types of books and want to shut them immediately. But I really enjoyed this book. And It kind of has a Hunger Games feel, but there's some twists to it that make it really interesting. So if that's your thing, if you like fantasy, I would definitely encourage you to check out Red Rising. It's a series of about seven books, and apparently the seventh book is going to drop next month in September. But yeah, check it out, and we'll include links to all of those within the show notes. For my plug, I'm going to plug the Redwood JS Conference. I'll include a link to that. So if you are interested in Redwood or you want to build a product, this is a great conference. So we'll have speakers that not only speak directly to Redwood topics, but also just in general for building a product. Um, Redwood is a React framework. And so there are several other pieces of technology that it touches. So for example, I will be giving a talk on Storybook and how to use Storybook within your product and how and building your product and what that looks like. But it's in Grants Pass, Oregon. And it's the end of September. 
So I look forward to being there and hopefully you can join me in person. There's also a virtual component if you are not available to make it to Oregon. Awesome. So Matias, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show and hear all about your experiences. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you and the part of James that we had. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, really, really thank you. And looking forward to listening. Awesome. Well, for now, that's all we've got.